You're listening to the St John's Diamond Creek Podcast. This episode presented by Senior Minister Tim Johnson. Today's reading is from Acts 24, verses 1 to 27. Five days later, the high priest Ananias went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus, and they brought their charges against Paul before the governor. When Paul was called in, Tertullus presented his case before Felix. We have enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation. Everywhere and in every way, most excellent fields. We acknowledge this with, with profound gratitude, but in order not to weary you further, I would request, request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. We have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots against the Jews all over the world. He is a ringleader of the Nazarene sect and even tried to desecrate the temple. So we seized him. By examining him yourself, you'll be able to learn the truth about these charges we are bringing against him. The Jews joined in the accusations, asserting that these things were true. When the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul replied, I know that for a number of years you've been a judge over this nation, so I gladly make my defence. You can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city. And they cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. However, I admit that I worship the God of our fathers as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that agrees with the law and that is written in the prophets. And I have the same hope in God as these men, that they will be a there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. After an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts to the poor and to present offerings. I was ceremonially clean when they found me in the temple court students. There was no crowd with me nor was I involved in any disturbance. But there are some Jews from the province of Asia who ought to be here before you and bring charges if they have anything against me. Or these who are here should state what crime they found in me when I stood before the same heathen, unless it was this one thing I shouted as I stood in their presence. It is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. And Felix, who was well acquainted with the way, adjourned the proceedings. When last year's the commander comes, he said, I will decide your case. 
He ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but to give him freedom and permit his friends to take care of his needs. Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla. He was a Jewess. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul discoursed on righteousness, self-control and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and said, That's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I'll send for you. At the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe, so he sent for him frequently and talked with him. When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, but because Felix wanted to grant a favour to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I love a good courtroom drama. At school, I remember reading To Kill a Mockingbird for English and being inspired by Atticus Finch as he defended an innocent man from false accusations. And I think I've loved books, TV shows and movies with courtroom dramas ever since. Whether it's a John Grisham legal drama like A Time to Kill or The Pelican Brief, uh, the play and movie Twelve Angry Men, or a military legal drama like A Few Good Men, you can't handle the truth. They get me in every time. In a legal drama, there's the battle of minds as opposing lawyers try and make their case. And underlying it all is the quest for justice. We want to see the guilty convicted of their crimes. We want to see the innocent person found not guilty and released. Perhaps inspired by this, I did study law for a time at university. Sadly, the reality wasn't nearly as exciting as the books and movies make it out to be. Who'd have thought? Well, our Bible passage today from Acts 24 is a courtroom drama where the Apostle Paul is standing trial in front of the governor, Felix, and we'll see accusations brought against him that he needs to defend. We're starting a series today called The Church on Mission. Well, it's, it's more resuming a series, really, because over the past few years at St. John's, we've been steadily working through the book of Acts under this title, looking at the way that the good news about Jesus, his death on the cross to deal with our sins, and his resurrection from the dead, bringing life, hope, and purpose, was shared and spread by his first followers. Most of the book of Acts follows the Apostle Paul on his missionary journeys. And we've tracked his first, second and third missionary journeys as he travelled around telling people about Jesus. His third missionary journey finished in Jerusalem, where he'd brought a collection from the different churches to support the poor in Judea. But things turned sour when a riot started around Paul in the temple precinct and he was accused of bringing a Gentile, a non-Jew, into the temple because he's been seen around town hanging out with Gentiles. So Paul is taken into custody by the Roman commander Lysias to protect him, really, from being lynched. And then he's whisked away under the cover of darkness with an armed guard because a plot has been uncovered to kill him in custody. Talk about drama. I mean, John Grisham, eat your heart out. So as we come to Acts 24, we find Paul in Caesarea Maritima. 
There's a map on the screen showing the location there on the coast. He's under guard in the palace, and now his trial is about to begin. So grab your Bibles and turn to Acts 24 as we look at this passage together. In verse 1, we meet the cast in this courtroom drama. The case is serious enough for the high priest Ananias to travel to the coast to seek a a conviction against Paul. And he brings other elders, religious leaders with him. But the case is prosecuted by a professional lawyer, a man named Tertullus. And the judge in the case is the governor Felix himself. As we'll see, Paul is defending himself. So you have the, the Jewish religious authorities bringing the case against Paul, and he's being tried by the Roman authorities under the jurisdiction of Felix. It's a pretty intimidating situation for Paul. Tertullus commences his case against Paul with flattery. That was standard practice for the time, where you started by trying to win the goodwill of the judge. So Tertullus speaks of the peace that they've enjoyed under Felix's rule, when in actual fact, the political situation was highly volatile and close to boiling over. He credits Felix with foresight and reform and says that the Jewish people are full of gratitude to him. In actual fact, he was harsh and brutal and feared rather than liked by the Jewish people. In the end, he was actually recalled to Rome for his brutality and bloodshed, and he narrowly escaped prosecution himself. But this is all about buttering up the judge so that he'll be receptive to your case. And Tertullus finishes with the promise that he will be brief. Well, he is pretty brief. Although what we have here is surely a summary of what he says. No lawyer is ever this brief, right? He brings three charges against Paul in verses five to eight. Firstly, he's a troublemaker who has been stirring up riots among Jewish people all over the world. Secondly, He's a ringleader of the Nazarene sect. There was no set name for Christians at the time, but because Jesus was from Nazareth, as were his first disciples, Tertullus refers to them as the Nazarene sect. They're a splinter group of religious extremists from the backwaters up north. And thirdly, Paul has tried to desecrate the sacred Jewish temple. The religious leaders add their voice to what Tertullus says and asserts that this is all true. Now just pause there for a second and think about how serious these charges against Paul are. Given the volatile political situation in Judea, he's accused of stirring up riots. That's the last thing that the Roman authorities want. And they'll come down harshly on anyone who stirs up this sort of trouble especially if it's a religious group who are radicalising people around their cause. Paul said to be ringleader of this sort of group. And there were hard-won legal protections around the Jewish temple. And in a volatile environment, if someone is messing with the temple, then that's a recipe for violence. And it would cause the whole volatile situation to boil over. So they're framing Paul as a troublemaker who's a threat to both Rome and the stability of the tenuous peace being held together in Judea. 
So Paul is facing a serious situation here. And if he says the wrong thing, he'll be in strife. How does he defend himself? Well, Paul also opens with flattery, but it's much more succinct and you might say more accurate too. He says, I know that for a number of years you have been a judge over this nation, so I'll gladly make my defence. And he goes on to answer the charges against him one by one. Firstly, he hasn't been stirring up riots in the city. It's only 12 days since he first landed in Jerusalem and he's been in his current location under guard for five of those days. So that's hardly long enough for him to be building a rebellion. What's more, he hasn't been involved in any public arguments in Jerusalem while he's been there. Now, we know from other parts of the book of Acts that Paul often spoke and debated publicly in other cities where he was. But he's been very restrained in Jerusalem. And so there's no way that they can find witnesses and make a charge of rioting stick. Now, there's a principle here for us, I think, as we think about living as Christians and doing mission ourselves. See, as much as it is in our power, we should act in a way where we live at peace with other people as we promote the good news of Jesus. We should do it with grace and love. People might not like what we're sharing about Jesus. People might not like the ethical standards that Jesus calls people to. People might dislike Jesus himself and his message and therefore dislike us as his messengers. That's okay. That's not easy or comfortable, but, but it's okay. But sometimes Christians can act obnoxiously and ungraciously, being more concerned to push their agenda and win the fight rather than acting in a way that commends the gospel by our actions. But Paul has shown wisdom in the way that he's acted in Jerusalem. So he can actually refute the false claims that are made against him. He hasn't acted illegally, but he sought to be respectful and in keeping with the law. We should do the same. Now, there may come a time and a situation where we are called to choose between obedience to God and obedience to earthly authorities, where civil disobedience is the only option due to our faith convictions. But this is mostly not the case for us at present. We can be both respectful of authorities and faithful to Jesus. Paul's done that in Jerusalem, and the charge of causing riots has no ground in fact. In answer to the second charge, Paul is happy to affirm that he is a follower of the way. That's another of the early names for Christianity that we find in Acts. He follows the way of Jesus. But he emphasises that his beliefs are mainstream and not part of some weird sect. He says, I worship the same God as other Jews. I believe the same scriptures. I have the same hope in the resurrection from the dead. And I've got the same goal of striving to live with a clear conscience before God and people. 
These things were key for early Christians to emphasise. Christianity, the way of Jesus, wasn't some new religion which had sprung from nowhere. It grew out of, more than that, it was a fulfilment of the Jewish faith. Everything in the Bible pointed to a fulfilment of God's plans for the world in a Messiah, a king. And Paul has now discovered who that king is. It's Jesus. And this has been powerfully demonstrated through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. In fact, Paul had fought against and opposed Christianity originally until he personally encountered the risen Jesus and discovered that it was all true, all of it. He realised that Jesus is the stunning crescendo of the promises of God, that Jesus is the world's true king and the only hope for humankind. Everywhere that Paul has preached and debated, that's been his starting point, opening up the Bible, opening up the Jewish scriptures, demonstrating from them that they all point to Jesus. Now, our approach to mission won't be exactly the same as this, uh, as our audience is not primarily a, a Jewish audience with a strong Old Testament background, but our approach is still to demonstrate that the Christian faith is robust, that it has a solid foundation in God's revelation of himself over time, that it's intellectually credible and consistent, and that it is the fulfilment of God's plans for people all over the world. I recently finished a book called The Air That We Breathe by Glenn Scrivener. Glenn's an Australian who works as a minister in the Church of England. And in his book, he seeks to demonstrate that the values which we hold in the West, equality, compassion, consent, scientific inquiry, freedom and progress, have all grown out of the Christian belief system. They're part of the air that we breathe, so we treat them as normal. But historically, they were revolutionary and radical ideas from Christianity. And indeed, apart from Christian belief, many of these values don't hold together intellectually. So when people seek to marginalise Christianity as some bizarre cult or weird sect, we have a solid foundation to demonstrate the beauty and the robustness of Christian faith. God is good for you. Jesus' way is the way of life and freedom. We can have confidence in our mission that we have something very valuable to offer. Thirdly, Paul answers the charge that he was desecrating the temple. On the contrary, he argues, I was bringing gifts for the poor and presenting offerings. I was ceremonially clean when I came to the temple and there were no crowds with me. So I was being very respectful in my attitude to the temple. The kicker at the end from Paul is to point out that the people who accused him of this charge Jews from the province of Asia, aren't even present as witnesses in the case. Now, that's actually quite a serious problem in Roman law. If you accuse someone of a crime, you better show up to court to prove your case. 
Paul's a Roman citizen. These people have accused him of desecrating the temple, but they haven't even bothered to show up. The elders and the chief priest weren't in the temple at the time. So Paul says, if they want to accuse me of something, then it needs to be about what happened when I met with the Sanhedrin, the religious parliament. Was it my belief in the resurrection of Jesus that is the real problem here? Can we talk about that? I'd love to talk about that. So again, we can learn some things from Paul's response here. See, he can demonstrate in his actions that he's acted respectfully towards other people. He hasn't deliberately caused offence by his behaviour. So if there is any offence here, it's that people are offended by the gospel, right? The claim that Jesus rose from the dead is challenging and offensive. But Paul's been very careful in other areas not to be disrespectful. Uh, Last week, uh, May Sam shared this verse from 1 Corinthians 10.31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. This is Paul himself writing this. And so it shows us something of his approach to life and mission, to seek to glorify God in all that he does. But listen to what he goes on to say in the very next verses. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, even as I try to please everyone in every way. For I'm not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. We live our lives seeking to glorify God. And as we do that, we don't put stumbling blocks in front of people, things that might offend or upset them. We try and do things that please people. But it's not so that people will think we're great or that they'll like us. It's for the sake of mission so that people may be saved. If we live our lives with grace and love and respect. If we act well, like Paul here, helping the poor with his gifts, then people might accuse us of doing wrong, but those charges won't stand up against our behaviour. And the gospel will have a platform for us to share openly about Jesus and why he matters. As we get to the end of this chapter, it's clear that The case can't be maintained against Paul. The charges simply won't stick against his godly behaviour. But rather than acquitting Paul, Felix simply adjourns the proceedings. Felix is motivated by self-interest. He's hoping that Paul will bribe him. And he's also trying to please the Jewish authorities and keep them on his good side. So Paul is left under house arrest for two years. For an action man like Paul, passionate in his mission for Jesus and with places that he wants to go to, it would have been incredibly frustrating. You know, despite his godly behaviour, despite his commitment to God and his mission, there he is like a bird trapped in a cage. What would have sustained him in that situation? Well, there's been clues throughout the passage. The hope he has 
because of the resurrection of Jesus. Do you notice he kept coming back to that in his defence? And as he talks to Felix and his wife Drusilla in verses 25 and 26, that's what he speaks about. He speaks about his faith in Jesus and righteousness, self-control and the judgment to come. Felix is a dodgy and corrupt judge. Paul's wrongly imprisoned despite his upright conduct. But because Jesus has risen from the dead, he is the one who will give the ultimate judgment when he returns. Now, talk of this actually freaks Felix out. He's afraid when Paul points this reality out to him. But to Paul, who trusts in Jesus and is confident that he's right with God through Jesus, he can entrust himself to the right judgment of Jesus. Even when this court has acted unjustly towards him. And it's the same for us. As we're on mission for Jesus, as we seek to live in a way that's loving, gracious and respectful, and at the same time promote the truth of the gospel, that Jesus is the king who offers us forgiveness, that Jesus is risen from the dead, that we all need to acknowledge his rule over our lives, that he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, People won't always like and accept us for this. We may well be treated unfairly and unjustly. And so we take heart, like Paul, in the fact that Jesus is risen from the dead. He's alive. And this marks him out as the world's true king and ultimate judge. We rest in his rule and we entrust ourselves to his justice while we continue to be on mission for him together. Thanks for joining us. If you'd like to subscribe to this podcast, you can do so in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Just search for St. John's Diamond Creek.